Hey guys, and welcome to the Bare Naked Health Podcast, where I interview the absolute best health and wellness practitioners from across the globe to show you what they do so you can do it too. This is because, like you, I did not always feel that health was easy. I had tried different diets, exercise plans, but often felt misled by an industry that really thrives on you not getting healthy and always spending money on the next new thing. Because of this, I'm getting bare naked on health and pulling back the curtain to show you that being truly healthy is simple. Wherever you are in your health journey, I want to show you that with minimal effort, you can get maximum results and do what you love. Play with your kids, go for a hike, and crush it in your business all while feeling great. To give a kickstart, I encourage you to go over to BarenakedHealthPodcast.com to access my calendar and schedule a 15-minute call so we can discuss what is your biggest struggle when it comes to maintaining your health. Remember that I'm a holistic lifestyle coach and that the show is really sponsored by you guys. Each of you that works with me that I am able to take on as a client helps me to be able to keep putting out these podcasts for free. So I just want to thank you, each of you, for your love and support. Hey guys, I'm your host, Nick Horowski, and welcome to the Bare Naked Health Podcast episode number 72. In today's episode, I interview founder and author of The Kalish Method, Dr. Dan Kalish. Be sure to stick around for the end of the show to hear about levitation, his 4 a.m. meditations, and the body's ability to heal. Alrighty guys, Nick Horowski here with another episode of the Bare Naked Health Podcast. And on the line today, I have Dr. Dan Kalish. Now, Dr. Kalish, first question I ask everybody who comes on the show is, tell us about your health journey in 10 sentences or less. Uh, okay, let's say, uh, age 16, I discovered the idea that food made a difference. And in the same year, I discovered the idea that spiritual practice made a difference by reading these books about Zen. By the time I was 18, I had checked myself into a Zen monastery and was on a really strict, organic, healthy diet. And then fast forward to the present day, I turned that into a career is probably the best way of putting it. Because I was like, hey, you know, maybe I could actually teach people how to do all these things that I've learned how to do myself. And that the Zen monastery, I've heard you talk about this before, uh, and I think that's something that people think about, like Zen monastery, and they probably just think, okay, that's that's out there. Like, how's anybody really going to implement in their everyday lives? But what are things that really practical things that you took away from that and were able to implement both with yourself but with patients as well? You know, I was thinking about this earlier today. So, uh, number one is meditate every day. And I don't expect my patients to meditate every day, but I think it's even more important for my patients that I do that, right? Absolutely, yeah. So, um, rather than expecting them to take the two or three hours every day, that's not realistic for most people that I work with. But if I'm doing it, it definitely transfers and creates a benefit for them. And that's, you know, a lot of what happened with the monastic situation was we're in this monastery, this man named Harada Roshi, enlightened Zen master, and he was doing the heavy, you know, we were the ones sitting in a full lotus with our knees screaming with pain, but he was the one really, in retrospect, doing the heavy lifting, right? Because he was carrying the energy of the entire facility and all the monks. 
and pushing us forward with what they call in Zen um, transference, right? He's teaching through transferring his powers or whatever you want to call it, you know, his energetic field was just being transferred to us and we were the recipients of that. And so I try to conduct that same kind of transference with the patients that I work with in my, in my practice. Now, what type of uh, meditation do you do? Do you do this, and is it the same type every day? Do you use different forms, uh, whether it be a still meditation, a moving meditation? Yeah, it's changed a lot over the years. You know, in Zen Monastery, obviously I did Zen meditation, and we also did Zen archery, which is a very physically demanding activity. If you wouldn't mind I mean, sharing a little bit about like, that, because that I have no idea. Oh, man, it's so hard. So there, uh, there's a really famous book written by a German many, many decades ago about learning how to do Zen archery. So they have these really long bows, six, seven foot, and um, they're bamboo, and they have feather, you know, eagle feather things that are for the arrows. And just drawing the bow is, uh, you know, almost physically impossible for a normal <laughs> human being. I had, I learned on the practice bows, which are like for, you know, normal people, and you know, just being able to pull the bow back takes so much physical strength and concentration that you can't even believe it. And I mean, I never even got to the point where I hit the target, right? It was just the idea of learning how to draw the bow. But they ritualize it so that, you know, there's a certain position you use and you draw in a certain way. And really the only way that a human being can make this whole thing work is if you're breathing properly, right? And if you're using your chi or your energy to focus it and make it happen. And so it's kind of like a physical exercise to teach you how to control your energetic body in a way. Maybe like Tai Chi is, right? Or a lot Absolutely. of the Kung Fu or a lot of the martial arts are like that. Um, and uh, it was really intense. I would go down to the archery range and there'd be all these old Japanese guys sitting around and they're like, draw the bow, shoot the arrow. I'm like, man, if this 80-year-old dude can do it, why can't I even pull the thing back? And you realize it's about internal strength, not about musculature. Now, uh, so what does your daily practice look like now that you do for yourself? Um, now I do a Taoist meditation practice, which involves, uh, you know, it's more uh, walking meditation, you might call it, or mm -hmm. a little more active meditation. And, you know, if you were watching me do it, it would look kind of like Qigong, okay. you know, if you know those kind of exercises, yes. looks a little bit like that. Yeah. Okay. Very good, very good. And now, if you're... Uh, sharing that with like do you do you share these with your patients do you, will you do that with them sometimes or is uh you just kind of give them uh resources to f maybe find what works well for them even oh yeah i don't ever show patients that i um do it that's my own in sort of personal practice but mm -hmm. i do encourage them to try to reach out and find you know what's going to work for them whether it's going back to church that they stopped going to or whether it's you know doing yoga or Tai Chi or a more formal sitting practice like I've done in the past, but you know, it really varies. I mean, I have some patients who's seriously their main meditation is gardening, you know, and they spend two, three hours every day in their garden growing flowers and vegetables, and that's their silent spiritual time, you know, where they're communing with nature. Totally legitimate, great way to do it, you know. And I but we need that. Everybody that. needs that yeah. every day, right? Everybody needs that break. Absolutely. From the emails and from. Netflix shows, and by the way, I'm watching Marco Polo now. Awesome show! I was just about to ask you, what are you watching <laughs> on Netflix right now? <laughs> That's really good, Marco Polo. Highly okay. recommended. I love these historical action shows. You know, it's really good. Okay, well then, from going off that, if you were to, uh, if you had a time machine, 
where are you go back in where are you going back in uh, to history? What would you want to go check out? Oh, that's a really great question. Uh, well, I would say the you know like in the lineage that I'm in now, I think it'd be good to meet some of the teachers you know in a live form, you know, instead of in a spirit form. So you know that would be the old Taoist masters. Sort of, it'd have to be like pre-revolutionary China before all the temples were destroyed and whatnot, you know? And it's not that far ago, right, when the communists took over and whatnot. Um, but I think, you know, that whole spiritual culture was literally burned to the ground when the communist revolution took over. And so they, I think a lot of that's been lost now. Going back, what do you think you could learn from them? Well, I think that the... I think that there's some... Um, you know, eternal kind of permanent universal truths that are you know present today and I think that you know in in past times I think it was maybe a little easier for people to access this and I don't know if people got to higher levels than they do now but there's certainly less toxicity environmental toxicity less you know problems with food supply quality and whatnot I mean they had things like typhoid fever and dengue fever and you know <laughs> stuff like that. It wasn't like things were easy living, you know, but I think that there's a level of, um, you know, disconnection that we have right now because of the way that we've treated the earth and the environment that we live in. And that in, in those days, I think in simpler times, you, you had a different uh, level of quality of achievement that people could get to in the spiritual life, I think. I mean, it's just harder now, I think. It's not that it's not doable. I'm not complaining, but I think that there is uh, just to think uh the quietness and the, the more obvious connections with nature that people had in the past. A lot different than what we experience now. Like I, this, My other favorite show I watch is Life Below Zero, which is about a group of people in Alaska. It's like four different people and they have, you know, they're sort of sustainable living in Alaska folks. And you really start to see how far away we've gotten from this idea of being able to live off the land and, and function as a part of the natural environment that we're in, you know. And there's still people like in Alaska trying to do this. You see them on the show. But um, we've really gotten pretty far away from that. I think it's disturbed our sensibilities in a lot of ways. So what do you think is maybe a way that we can kind of bring those two worlds together? Like, how can we combine? I mean, we're talking on the computer here, uh, the technology that we have, but still with being able to blend that with, hey, getting out in nature uh, and really living off of the land still. Yeah, I mean, I, I try to do it in my own ways, and I'm pretty committed to every Sunday going to the farmer's market and getting my food from local farmers. And uh, I have my favorites, so I actually pretty much have a good idea where most of my food comes from and buying it from people that grew it. And then almost every day I'm taking a walk, you know, around the lake that we have here in Oakland, sometimes in the woods near my home where I live in Oakland. And, um, you know, probably 80% of the time I do that. And that's the time to get a little bit of exercise, but more so to just be, you know, in, again, a non-digital state, right? Uh, and, like, I turn my phone off, you know, I'm not, like, walking and reading the New York Times on my phone at the same time. <laughs> it's like a, a disconnection hour, you know, um, which is, I think, really important. Hey, that sounds great. That's that's a simple way to do it. Hey, get up. It's, it's, yeah. It's doable. It works. And and I think, no, like you just said there, it's doable. That's the thing. It doesn't have to be overcomplicated, but getting 
again, that great local food, uh, especially, okay, so not everybody can do that all year round maybe, but for the majority of people, there's a local farmer's market that is open at least a substantial part of the year now. Uh, so I think that's the way of doing that, getting out in nature every day. Seems and it takes simple. so it takes a lot of time, you know. I was I was bitching about this last night to my girlfriend because I I taught all these webinars, I did all these doctor trainings. Yesterday we went late. The doctors had a lot of extra cases, so I'm done like at six fifteen, and I started working. My first class and first patients were like at eight in the morning, so I had a pretty long day. You know, boom, straight through back to back, and then I'm like in the kitchen cooking food for that night and then for today, cleaning up. And we're chatting, and you know, my girlfriend's coming over, and we're just talking. And then, while well, I'm doing all this, and then she's like, "You've been there for an hour and forty-five minutes." I was like, "Holy moly, is that possible?" You know, just to clean up and cook, you know, three meals took an hour and forty-five minutes of my time. And I was thinking, "Wow, like, what, what, you know, what else could I have been doing? Watching Netflix, you know, reading the New York Times online. Probably it would have been some kind of digital thing." And then I thought, well, we could have just gone out. I could have bought dinner for 20 bucks and gotten some organic, healthy, vegan meal, you know. And But then do we really want to live that way? Or do you need to just spend an hour and 45 minutes every day getting your food prepared, you know? Um, that's a really big question. I think it's so easy to get the vegan food delivery van coming and to disconnect yourself and, and just to say, I don't have time. You know, what's really popular in Silicon Valley right now, you know, where I live here is... Um, uh, the company's called like Soylent Green or I don't know. So it's some play on a movie from the 70s where they were actually, it was a disgusting movie. But anyways, the, the product is a, a meal replacement drink. And the idea is that, you know, if you're working at Google, Facebook or Intel or somewhere like that, why bother even stopping for lunch? Why even bother going to the cafeteria that's down the hall that they've created for you to keep you trapped on the campus so that you work all the time? Why even leave your desk, you know? And so that's like the big new thing power shakes to get you through the day and um, so you don't even have to go to the Google cafeteria and order your subsidized food you can just sit and work and power through another line of code on your programming thing you know and that that's seen as an innovation right now you know I often think that we've in our culture we're at a phase now I believe where we have forgotten more than we could learn you know, and then in science, there's always this tendency, like a research study comes out, like further research is needed. I'm like, no, 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 it's really the opposite. We just need to go back to what we used to know and what we used to do. This forward momentum thing is not working, clearly. And if we just went back to the way we used to eat and work and function, most of the chronic degenerative diseases would almost disappear, right? Diabetes, heart disease, and cancer would almost disappear if we just went back to what we used to do. And going forward to try to find solutions to things that we have created as problems doesn't make a lot of sense if we just go back to what we used to do then their the problem's gone it's ironic isn't it and it, it really is and it's it's one of those like i i don't see the end in sight though unfortunately right now it's because of like just something you just shared and it, i can remember actually watching the movie uh the social network so about facebook mm -hmm. and yeah. like when they were going to town like you said they're writing the code it was like they weren't allowed to be interrupted. You had to just completely stay away from them, maybe give them their food, but just let them keep going, keep going. And at what cost is it really going to come back to basically bite us in the butt at some point? So going uh, in, in a little bit on this then, 
All right, you talked about being at uh, like the doctor training, uh, working with clients, all of this. When somebody asks you, what do you do? What's your answer? Oh, now my answer is I teach physicians how to do functional medicine and you know, natural health programs, online training program. Don't really talk about my private practice so much anymore. I used to. But, I mean, I still have a private practice. I still work with a lot of patients on the phone, but um, I think of myself more as a physician trainer now. And I also read uh, the Kalish Method uh, about a month ago or so. So I think that's, it, it was it was going back to the simplicity of things, like going back to kind of the way things were. I think that was a very easy way to, to sum it up. Uh, so I appreciate Sharing, sharing that with so many people. Uh, do you want to give people maybe a rundown, a little bit of what the Kalish Method is, maybe what your overall practice looks like uh, to help share with people, please? Oh, yeah, for sure. So right at this point in my career, I work with patients on the phone, people all over the world, and we order really simple lab tests for what I look at as three body systems. We check for neuroendocrine. That's a fancy way of saying hormones and brain related problems. We check for GI issues which are pretty common and then we look for detoxification and nutrient imbalances. So we run a series of two or three labs on all the new clients and then once the labs are back we start to make recommendations about dietary changes, lifestyle changes and supplement programs that they may need to reverse whatever is going on, you know, and it could be anything from, you know, chronic fatigue type problems to someone who wants to get pregnant to an athlete that just wants to be able to run faster um, work with a lot of like literally people from ages 2 to 82 uh, uh, and then um, just I mean the main requirement for people that I work with is that they are looking for a natural health solution um, and they're oftentimes either frustrated or fed up or just don't believe that the conventional medical systems you know going to provide them with the best possible outcome you know um, that seems to be my niche now and I'm not against conventional medicine in, in whatsoever but there's certainly a lot of conditions that just don't fall onto their you know into a category which they treat very well and uh, I think people are starting to figure that out now in a pretty large way okay. excuse me Dr. Kalish I'm curious about your take on supplements because I know that you mm -hmm. use them and I, I know supplements are still just an astronomically large business at this point. But is this something that people are on long term? Is this you're you're running a test, giving them some, giving them the other nutrition protocols, lifestyle protocols, and then retesting to see are these even necessary any further? Then. Well, you know, I I just took a a two week vacation and I went to the Big Island of Hawaii, and I took my was taking my mom and her brother back to the town they grew up in, and. It happens to be in this little town called Hafi. I, I rented this place, and uh, it, it, it was a 10-acre organic farm. And there's a naturopath that was running the farm, this guy named Richard Liebman. And so, you know, Richard and I are talking, and he's a little bit older than me, maybe 15 years older than me, something like that. And uh, I'm like, what are you doing here, Richard? You know, you stop your practice, you're growing vegetables. And he looked around, and he was like, you know, this is why everyone's sick, because people aren't you know, living on the land and growing their own food. And I was like, whoa, dude, like, he's evolved to this point where he saw enough sick people in his long career and he wanted to do something more meaningful and sort of lead by example and say, hey, you know, 
you can run a farm, you can grow the food, you can supply people with what they need to stay healthy. So I think that really, you know, the supplement deficiency problems that we see and the reason why doctors like myself have to sell so many supplements is because soil quality is eroded and people just aren't simply eating the things that they should. And so supplements to me are supplemental, right? They're not permanents. You know, they're not something that's supposed to be a permanent part of your diet. But most of the people that I work with are so nutritionally deprived that the idea of fixing them solely with diet would take so long that it's not realistic. So we use the supplements on a short-term basis to load the system back to where it should be and give the person that transition time so they can start to work with, like I do. Like, do I take supplements? Not really. <laughs> not, you know, I mean, I do a liver cleanse pretty frequently because it's a pretty toxic environment. But, um, you know, I get basically my nutrition from my food and um, with a little extra support here and there. But not heavy-duty, large amounts of supplements, you know, just specific things that I need that are, you know, mostly to make up for the, you know, um, environmental toxicity that we all face and having to clear toxins on a regular basis. But outside of that, you know, I think we can get most of what we need from food. Later, in the process, though, they can't, it's, you know, it, there's usually this intervention, lab-based intervention that happens first for maybe a year, and then we segue people over to diet. And and I appreciate that because people look at certain things and they'll see, oh, well, somebody who's practicing functional medicine, okay, yeah, they're going to give me all the supplements. But no, like you said, yes, is that part of it? Absolutely. But is that going to be uh, the, the rest of their life they're always just going to be taking these things? No. Like you said, it's learning all the other things to do, eating the right food, getting that environment is, is the best quality that they can so that everything can really function optimally. Uh now, you mind sharing why uh, specifically the liver versus any other types of things that you're doing? Well, I mean, thank you. If you think about food quality, I mean, we can't really approximate the food quality that people had in the past so much, right? Because of soil depletion problems, how food is transported, and you know, we're not growing it all fresh in our garden, and you know, having mineral-rich soil and all this kind of stuff. So, food quality is one issue. Um, that you can't really work around. Um, so I think for that reason, there needs to be a little bit of supplementation for most people. But what's even, I think, more dramatic is you know how things are different now than they were maybe 50 or even 100 years ago is you know, just the presence of 80,000 plus chemicals in the environment. Right now, when they do lab testing on the average American, depending on what study you read, it could be anywhere from like 120 to as many as six or 700 toxins in the human body at any one time. Everything from flame retardants to DDT, the copper, lead, mercury, zinc. I mean, sorry, copper, lead, uh, mercury, zinc's a good one. Uh, you know, so heavy metals, chemicals, we're pretty much saturated with all these things. And um, because of environmental degradation and all the chemicals that we've generated and the way that we burn coal, you can't really make up for all that with food, you know? And, um, you might be able to if you're really clever and you do a lot of vegetable juicing and you know you kind of figure out exactly how to dial in pretty concentrated nutrients from food. Um, I don't think you could eat enough vegetables to make up for the environmental toxin exposure that most of us have. And then what we're learning now in functional medicine is you know this whole thing about SNPs and genetics, and that there are a lot of people out there that just don't have the genes that are required, or they don't the genes that help run detox pathways and get rid of chemicals and metals are for some reason or another turned in a way that's, that's not functional. So there's a certain pretty large group of people, and this is a bulk of the people that I work with, who just can't detoxify properly. 
you know. And there's no way they're ever, ever, ever be able to run the detox pathways properly just by eating a good diet. So some people, depending on genetic tendencies and how the genes have been expressed, may need you know, more supplementation than others. I don't get sick very often uh, from chemical exposure. I do get sick if I'm around diesel fumes. And um, I used to get sick, you know, from like magazines and newsprint and clothing stores that had a lot of new clothes. It doesn't really happen so much to me anymore until I think about it. Um, so I, I try to keep my chemical burden pretty low and, you know, do a program to clean out toxins in the liver a couple times a year. Um, you could do it with juicing, like I said, but it'd be a lot of work and it'd be pretty hard. Uh, so I just try to do it with supplements. So do you have another favorite island in Hawaii or is the Big Island your favorite? Well, you know, my mom grew up, was born and raised on the Big Island in a small town. And I love it there and I go back there frequently. Uh, it's a pretty intense place though, you know. Uh, I'm, if I was to move there, I think I'd probably move to Maui. Maui's got just a lot happening. You know, it's maybe a little busy hustle bustle for Hawaii. But um, there's a, a really strong healing community there. People are coming in and out from all over the world. Um, and even though there's places you can live that are pretty secluded and quiet, and you certainly could have a really good organic farm there, um, but you still have that kind of connection with the outside world. And where my relatives live on the Big Island, it's pretty desolate and isolated, you know. Um, we were there, when did we, we flew in like on Sunday, and we're like, oh, we'll go to the grocery store and get some food. And we're like, oh, it's closed at 1. <laughs> like at 1. We're like at 1 p.m. And like, oh, okay, well, that's a little weird. And there is no farmer's market. And basically the whole town was shut down on at 1 o'clock on Sunday afternoon. It was pretty funny. See, I've never been. I, my wife and I, last year we uh, went to Kauai and Maui. Uh, but I want to get back because I want to see everything else. I mean, it just all seems so beautiful. Uh, but for me... It was Kauai that had that. The, there's something about it. The the more remote parts of it, I guess. It was just amazing to be there. Yeah, yeah. I have some family that lives there too. It's beautiful. Now, just thinking about nature in general, what's uh, what's the most beautiful part of nature for you? Oh, uh, I personally, and maybe this goes back to my time in Thailand. I personally like forests. You know. When I lived in Thailand, I lived in a forest monastery, and there are forest monks. It's like a subspecialty, you know. <laughs> you can have like a, you know, you have a, I don't know, like an algebra teacher, and you have like a history teacher. Well, they have forest monks, believe it or not, and they live in the forest, you know, and they need trees around in order to be forest monks, and that, that kind of always had a strong appeal to me. Plus, I'm from Northern California, you know, so we have a lot of pretty classic redwood forests up here. Even within walking distance of my house, I can get to the Redwoods. Uh, and that's pretty nice. So, I, I, I have no idea then, so there are forest monks, like there are different, like you said, it's different types of monks then, as far as where they yeah, live or that location? Yeah, they just, um, they have kind of made their homes in the forest, you know? And so they have uh, uh, forest monasteries, and they're always tucked in the jungle, and they have certain kind of huts and whatnot, and they have uh, other rituals and routines are based around living in the forest. Interesting. Very cool. Yeah. Forest, I guess people maybe don't know that. Um, but I lived in a forest monastery for almost two years in southern Thailand and for a little while in northern Thailand. 
um, but mostly in the south. And this is beautiful, beautiful experience here. Um, and it's a pretty, it's maybe what we would call rainforest. It's kind of jungly, you know? Like there's monkeys and there's scorpions and, you know, it's like stuff happening. It's a pretty active environment. Are there any of the, are there any specific trees or anything that are very uh, uh, regarded, that are highly regarded or used for any ceremonies or anything like that? Oh, yeah. I used to know all that stuff. You know, one of the coolest things that the forest monks do, and this was, I'm I kind of like a techie gear kind of guy, is they have these huge umbrellas. Have you ever seen these? I'm not sure. No? Okay. So they're, I don't know, they're huge. I mean, they seem huge. Maybe like six, seven foot tall umbrellas. Okay. But, um, and they carry them, you know, like we would have a regular umbrella that you use for the rain. So yeah. they fold down, you know, so it's like, looks like a stick that you're walking with. And when they open up the umbrella, and then you can drape like mosquito netting around it, basically it turns into your living quarters or like a tent. So they can wander through the forest with this big umbrella looking thing and basically be kind of independent. They have their bowl, they got their umbrella, and poof, they're out and they can live basically, you know, in the jungle. And, um, the monks that I lived with in the northern part of Thailand were much more hardcore. They were like, um, kind of like the Navy SEALs of monks, you know. And so there, they would, um, you, the rules were you put usually typically five years into the monastery. You lived there for five years. And then they would send you out on like independent study kind of thing. And they would grab their bowl, grab their umbrella, and just literally walk into the woods on their own and try to figure out how to survive. And in, in this era, this is in the... When this is in the 80s, there were still, uh, and, and I think there's less so today, there were um, many enlightened Thai Buddhist masters who lived on their own in isolated forest areas. And so one of the games that the monks would do, it was almost like a game, is they would try to find these enlightened teachers, you know. And um, one of my good friends um, who ordained as a monk, he's still a monk to this day, 25 years later, 30 years later, um, had, he did his five years, and then he spent another five years. He learned how to speak Thai fluently, finding each one of these Thai forest ma masters that he could, and basically kind of you know bowing to them and being at their feet and and studying with them. And in the in like in the 1920s and 30s in Thailand, there was sort of a boom of young monks that were uh, brought into the fold that ended up going all the way and becoming fully enlightened. So he just made a circuit of this for about five years and. Uh, that's like the kind of almost um, like legendary kind of thing, right? Because I mean, how many of us have even met one of these guys who has become fully enlightened and then decided his best role in this world was not to start his own monastery and not to be a public figure, but to retreat to a distant forest to find a hut and, and to wait until a young monk could find him to come train. You know, it's pretty cool. So that kind of stuff still exists. It's wild. It's unfortunate because it's people just don't believe that. Like it's oh that can't be or that's not real, like that type of thing. But no, it's it's out there. There's so much more than I guess the average person is ever going to realize, uh, as far as especially that in type of enlightenment and what people are able to do. That's just that's wild. Yeah, these that's guys so can do romantic. things that you know, that would seem appear you know, appear to be crazy to us. Um their level of I don't know expertise or level of ability, skill level is is you know able to do things that we would think would be basically impossible. But um, I think Any also that you know that sometimes you, that you could share. That, well, it just makes me sound like they're you know, crazy. But they can definitely do remote viewing. Yeah. 
they could see anything anywhere they want. They could be in different locations at the same time. They could levitate. Levitating is like low level kind of thing, you know. Um, but I think one of the important concepts is that you know sometimes people realize that their best contribution can be made by um, not in a uh, overt kind of extroverted way like we do in this country, like being a politician or being a school teacher or you know really influencing people directly, but more so to withdraw and be a spiritual leader, even if it's in a very sort of subterranean, low-key kind of context where you're not on TV all the time like the Dalai Lama, right? But you're still contributing, like I was saying earlier, in this way of transference, right? Um, in a sense, they feel like they're holding this space. They like, feel like they're part of what holds the fabric of the planet together and keeps us from tearing each other apart with endless wars and you know, all this stuff. I mean, things are bad enough as they are, right? But obviously I think that the, the spiritual leaders, in it, whether they're outward like the Dalai Lama who's really helping a lot of people or they're like a Mother Teresa that gets to be popular or whether they're like a forest monk who's hiding out that only maybe trains three or four other people, they're still kind of basically the, the foundation of our societies, you know? And they're why we're all here in a way, you know? Why we're not completely disintegrated emotionally and spiritually. You brought up the transference again, and I, I'm curious for myself, but for other practitioners, uh, and maybe how you do this for yourself. So I think of the transference too, like, okay, if I've had a day full of seeing patients, right, I'm transferring my energy to them, each patient that I'm seeing. Is there any uh, tips or any practices that you use so that you really aren't just uh, maybe completely depleting yourself by the end of the day so you still have something more left to give to each patient that comes in. Yeah, and this is a very important concept for healers in general, which is that um, it's not a personal energy that we're expending. So it's very easy to get personally involved with patients. It's very easy to care about them in a way that is not helpful you know and so you know basically you can't really take away another person's pain that's not, not possible and yet you know I think um, the kind of common most common mistake that I made in my practice certainly in the early years is to think that through sort of uh, me worrying about the person and me being empathetic about what's going on with them that that would help but really what helps people more than merging with them and trying to take away their pain is if you just hold the example of what you're trying to lead them to, right? And so if you're full of abundance and you're running massive amounts of energy through your own system, then it's like being around a bright light that's just, you know, helping you see what's going on. And that's a lot different than like merging your candle with their candle and trying to get in their stuff, you know, and make it better. And um, so if when practitioners are being drained from the work that they do, it's because they're overly merging, right? And they're not being that stable force that's emitting. You imagine like a super bright searchlight doesn't get dimmer just because there's stuff around it, you know? And so, um, but I think that's uh, easy to make mistake. One of my teachers, Dr. Budding, used to always say, uh, nothing beyond the shirt sleeves. You know, he'd always wear these really beautiful couple thousand dollar suits with white shirts. And so no energy coming into his system, you know, it's all going out. Yeah, we have to. That's, that's a really beautiful way to think about it is, uh, I, I like that, just holding the example. 
hey, if we're healthy, if we're doing our meditation, getting out in nature, eating the food, uh, moving properly, I mean, all of the above, uh, then really, then they can learn from that. And that's, that's going to be the best way. So that's, I mean, I guess how we would be uh, transferring or even conducting uh, that. So, yeah, thank you for sharing the, the tips. I think that's a lo- something I know myself and I'm sure others can uh, learn from as well. What is your vision, Dr. Kalish, for a healthy future? Maybe in 10 years, in 100 years from now. Well, you know, I heard a good talk about this the other day. And uh, I do believe this is true. I think, you know, the, the next generation coming up, maybe like my son's age and even younger, my son's 17 now, you know, they're going to inherit, they're the process of inheriting a pretty big mess, you know? Um, political, economic instability seems to be on the upswing in this country and in Europe and in Asia as well. Um, certainly, you know, environmental destructions, global warming, climate change, kind of hitting some kind of peak badness here. And I think that what I see is happening is that um, that next generation is going to, you know, really provide the solutions to what my generation and my parents' generation have kind of created in terms of the mess. And um, I, I'm starting to see that happen, and I think that group has some extraordinary capacity to make this work, you know, and that, that hopefully they can see things um, that haven't worked and be able to, you know, renegotiate how, how things are going to be a little bit different. Um, and, I, and it's interesting, you know, I, and I, even in my own profession, I see this starting now, like within functional medicine, I see what used to be a pretty obscure, out-of-the-way subject being adapted or adopted, you know, by much more mainstream conventional physicians and medical institutions. And I see that people are just starting to kind of get that we've created something that's really dysfunctional that needs to shift. So I have high hopes it's going to happen. I think people are going to pull out of this, but I certainly, you know, had it to get a lot worse than I would have liked in order for people to see that you know, the situation that we've created is unsustainable, basically. And somehow in the functional medicine is kind of in the middle of all this, you know, because we're, um, like I said earlier, we're looking back at what people used to do to stay healthy, but then also using some lab-based technologies and some of the modern medicine ideas to analyze people and figure this all out. And, um, you know, I, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty optimistic that it's going to work, but I think it's going to take a generation or two to undo what we've created. I think if it only takes a generation or two, that's not bad. Uh, based on, really, unfortunately, a lot of the damage that has been done, uh, that would be amazing. I mean, just to be able to turn things around, or at least start the turnaround uh, of really everything. Like you said, it's not just maybe necessarily what we did to food, but uh, the the debts that are running rampant and so on and so forth. Uh, there's a lot, a lot to be improved upon. Yeah, I mean, I see this in my practice too, you know, because I see this with sick patients. We get, I get sick patients all the time who get better astronomically faster than should be possible, you know. And I'm just standing there going, wow, how did that happen? On a regular basis, I see this, like every day in my practice. And things that are happening that you just, you know, if I documented it, people go, oh, he's crazy, that couldn't happen. And I'm thinking, I'm watching it, I'm thinking, that couldn't even happen. So I think that the, uh, I was at a conference 
a couple months ago in Phoenix, the ShyCon conference that Ben Lynch puts on. I was one of the speakers there, and we were at the speaker dinner, you know, the night before the conference started. And I sat next to this guy named Hedrickson, and he's a Dutch guy. He's a soil expert. Basically, he reconditions soils that are damaged. And he's and I, you know, we talked all evening, and we talked several times throughout the three or four day conference. And basically, this guy can rehab soils in three or four days using these tanker trucks full of probiotic solutions and all kinds of really sophisticated technology that basically puts the organisms back into the soil that should be there in the first place. And um, he can create, you know, topsoil in a matter of days or weeks that could have taken hundreds of years to create naturally. And he's got this documented all over the world. He's done these projects. You know, he's a really famous guy. And when I'm talking to him more and more, I just realized, wow, it's just what I see with the human body. We got these people that are pretty messed up. You know, they're pretty tired. They're pretty fat. They're pretty much have no sex drive. They're pretty depressed. And in a matter of days or weeks or maybe a couple months, we see these changes that are just incredible. So I think on a planetary level and on a personal health level, the healing capacity is is beyond anything that we could understand, which is why I'm pretty optimistic because as bad as things are, I think, and I see this again in my practice regularly, the flip around happens way, way faster than you would expect. And when I met Hedrickson, I was like, wow, that's awesome. It's true for the environment and for soils as well as it is for human beings. It makes sense. You know? And you're right. I'd never thought of it in that manner. I, I, I might uh, have somebody coming in who's been in pain for, like you said, 20, 30 years. And for some reason, you can get them better in a couple in a matter of months and it, it doesn't almost like it, it almost doesn't add up that it should have happened that quickly but it, it yeah. really can happen uh, that's that's a really good way to look at it uh, and, and that's my reality that's just based on my personal experience my if you ask for my personal opinion I would say we're screwed and it's over you know <laughs> everyone's fat and depressed and everyone's taking drugs and we should just give up but that would be my personal opinion, but my personal experience just shows me the opposite. So, so then, how about what's something that you believe that others think is insane? Uh, that's a good question. Well, I guess again, from well, I guess I would say that there's, um, you know, that there's something else that's happening here, kind of like the movie The Matrix. You know, did you ever see that? Yeah. You know, there's like one kind of thing happening, and then there is this other kind of thing happening. And I think that, you know, um, the, the deeper that you get into your meditation and spiritual practices, the more you realize that there is something else happening. And, you know, I think when you're first learning to meditate, um, you may have occasional experiences of this other reality and glimpses of it momentarily. And then eventually it starts to become more common, and then it actually starts to become your reality, you know, that there is this other reality. And I think that, you know, a lot of people in the scientific community and in medicine and in general, have a really uh, non-spiritual view of the world, you know, and their their brain just can't accept that there's something else more important, perhaps, going on than the things that they can observe in this rather uh, simplistic external world that we're in. And so, I think it's a little bit of a conflict. I don't think it was always like that. I think for most of human history, healing, healers, and healing has been uh, conducted within a spiritual realm context. But in our culture, more recently. We kind of broke out science and put through, you know, healthcare over in the science camp, 
which made it more of this, um, you know, experiment has to prove it, research has to show it kind of thing. And I, I just think it's sort of a misplaced categorization, you know, that really healing belongs in the spiritual category. And if you look at pretty much every culture for all of human history, that's how we've divided it up. I think there's a reason for that, you know. As and it's not, remember I said earlier, it's not like an advancement that we, we pulled healthcare out of spiritual life and threw it over in science. I don't think that was a, I mean, I'm glad we have clean water and that we know how to, you know, do x-rays and stuff. I'm not against scientific progress, but I think that we lost a lot in, in thinking that it's exclusively something that's going to be, you know, we're going to solve cancer, heart disease, and diabetes exclusively through scientific breakthroughs. I think that's unrealistic. It's clearly not working right now. Well, maybe what's what's uh, one of the biggest scientific breakthroughs that you've seen recently? Oh, oh that's a good question, too. Let's see. Oh, you know what really excited me the most was um, when they started – this came out maybe a year or two ago when they found those particles. Did you read about this? Um, you know, there's always been this theory about the Big Bang, right? And that um, Einstein predicted all these uh, – events in within the realm of physics that were going to happen in relation to the Big Bang. And he did this like, I don't know, in the 20s or 30s or something, right? And they finally found the radiographic signaling, whatever they call it, evidence of that. Um, and I, when I read these articles, I was just completely fascinated. And basically, they were able to see the moment that the universe started, you know, all these particles and waves and all these things were sent out. And they actually can measure that stuff now. Um, and there's, there's, to me, there is like a pretty deep significance to that beyond the fact that it's kind of this huge breakthrough for physics or astrophysics or whatever, um, is that there's, um, how can I say it, that there's like a unifying thread that goes throughout all of our you know, world and all of the known universe, even besides this planet, just on a greater level, and that now we can actually start to measure these little pulses and waves. I think that's something that spiritual people have seen and felt for thousands of years, and now the science guys can kind of catch up to it and actually measure it. To me, it was like a, a group of physicists measuring spiritual energy that was emanating. And when you look at even the drawings of this stuff, um, I read the New York Times every day, so there's a big article on this on the front page of the New York Times when it first happened. If you actually look at the drawings of what they're talking about, um, it is exactly what some of these Taoist drawings are like. Like exactly, not like kind of close, but like exactly. You're like, holy moly, these guys in China, you know, thousands of years ago actually saw this somehow. And now we're kind of rediscovering it, you know, in a literal sense with measuring devices that we've created. You know, it was pretty cool. And, and that's, I think, kind of going back to like what you said before, like, hey, we don't necessarily need to keep doing new research, new research. It's, you're looking back to see what was what's already been there. What's what can we learn from uh, just everything in the past? I mean, that's something that's jumping out right there to me with that. Yeah, it's it's really true. I think we, we've we've I don't know. Maybe it's because I live in in Silicon Valley too, where everything's so forward thinking, and you know, where um, you know, I see self driving cars all the time and you're just looking at them going wow that's weird how did that happen how does that work and 
We, uh, one of the funniest things I've seen recently as we were driving a couple weeks ago and there is a self-driving car that a cop had pulled over. <laughs> I tried to take a picture of it so I could tweet it or whatever, but I, I, it was not a very good picture. You couldn't really tell what was happening. I was like, wow, this is our future. We got police officers chasing down self-driving Google cars in Mountain View, California. It's pretty funny. <laughs> That's a wild thing to think about. Yeah, because, well, is who's at fault then if something happens like... Oh my god! I don't. I don't know if the cop was just like wanting to talk to him, or if he was writing a ticket, or what was happening. I don't, I'm not sure what was going on. So, Dr. Kalish, you've talked about a lot of. We've gone into, I mean, so many different aspects of health, but we're talking about the Big Bang and particles coming about. What's your current area of study? Is there anything you're just really diving deep into that really interests you? Uh, yeah. So within functional medicine, we could keep it real here. There's. Um, a couple of things that have happened, there's two new testing technologies that have come around in the last couple of years. And so I spent most, well, I don't know, not most, but a lot of my day today trying to stay up on these things. Um, there's a new stool testing technique that's out now for parasites, bacteria, and yeast, which uses a DNA-based technology. So you can imagine like um, if you watch a crime show on TV and they find a hair in the bathtub and they run a DNA sample or they find a drop of blood and they can say that, you know, definitively this person was so, you know, there because their DNA was there. Now, they're now able to run DNA tests for parasites, bacteria, and yeast in the gut, which is a big deal for functional medicine because a lot of what we do is centered around uh, digestive tract health and functioning. And these DNA tests now are getting, kind of coming into their own in the last year. They're getting some really accurate ones. So I've been studying that. I'm going to be lecturing a lot about that in the coming year. Probably the biggest breakthrough technically, technology-wise, in my 25 years of practice, I would say. Um, it's a pretty big deal. Um, and then there's also uh, something I'm studying equally avidly on, on the adrenal hormones, because I've, I've been measuring and monitoring and research, doing research projects on adrenal hormones for a long time now. And um, there's new testing technology that's coming out for looking at the hormones as well. And I, I think what's happening in a bigger sense is that functional medicine available more interest in it and so these companies are able to really get more innovative and and start up new enterprises and and develop new technology that you know just hasn't been around in the past so it's a pretty exciting time right now we have um, just better tools that we're developing on the science side of all this as much as I'm kind of trying to say I'm a little bit anti-science I love the technology and I try to stay up on what's the latest and these I've been around for so long you know doing this because these tools are relatively new, it's fun, and it's exciting, and it looks to me like, you know, we're going to be getting more and more accurate uh, results and better programs designed because of this for things like weight loss and fatigue and um, depression, anxiety, really common symptoms that we see we're going to be able to just treat more effectively now. Dr. Kalish, what is, what are maybe your just absolutely non-negotiable health habits? things maybe on a daily basis, a weekly basis, just what is kind of set in stone that you're always going to do to take care of yourself? Yeah, I'd say there's, there's probably three or four. Um, and they're interrelated because if one happens, the other happens. But if this one doesn't happen, none of the others happen. So I'll start with the one that it's not necessarily the most important, but if this doesn't happen, then none of the others happen. So the first one that's the most important is going to sleep by 9 p.m. 8.30, I'm tired, 9, I should be asleep. If that happens, which it often does, 
then I wake up around 4 or 5. Are there a lot of people emailing and awake at 4 or 5 in the morning? No. So guess what? You get two, three hours to meditate, which is great. It's also for a lot of reasons to do with brain chemistry. I don't fully understand. It's the best time to be in the spiritual life anyways, you know, early in the morning, 4 or 5 in the morning, before the sun comes up. So meditate. And then you know some kind of fitness exercise thing. And then if I'm doing all of that, then it's kind of guaranteed that I'm going to eat pretty healthily. Now, if it's 9.30 at night and I decide to watch one more episode of Arrested Development on Netflix because I just can't wait to see what's going to happen, and then all of a sudden it's 10.30 and I'm thinking, wow, bowl of cereal sounds really good right now, you know, because now, of course, you're staying up too late, you're stressed, your stress hormones are going through the roof, you start to get hungry, even though you're not really hungry, you don't need the food, then you eat a bunch of junk food, then you go to bed, you got a bunch of food in your stomach, so you're digesting while you're sleeping, so you don't rest very well. Then I wake up at 7, 7.30, I have to start work at 8, so there's no meditation time, and then I'm like, oh, kind of screwed up, might as well just eat some junk food for dinner, you know what I mean? That sort of goes into a negative pattern. But if I get to bed by 9, then this whole thing works. And I'll tell you, that's the hardest thing for me to get myself to do. And the hardest thing to get patients to do is to go to bed on time. Nobody wants to go to bed. People eat organic food and they'll either do paleo or plant-based or gluten-free forever. They'll cut out sugar, but going to bed at nine, it's like dealing with five-year-old children, right? What does every five-year-old say? I'm not tired. I'm not tired. <laughs> I'm not tired, right? I think in the history of the human race, no young child has ever said, oh yeah, dad, I'm really tired. I think I better go to sleep. And adults are just exactly the same. They won't go to bed on time. It's funny. It cracks me up. And yeah, I, I certainly can't disagree with that. I mean, talking to patients, they're like, oh, what are some simple things you can do? And it's one of the first things you're always going to say. I mean, I usually start off with water because, okay, it's usually a yeah. little bit easier. Yeah. A uh, little bit easier buy-in, but then you bring up the whole sleep thing and it's, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. I function fine on this. I'm good. Well, then why are you asking me about it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. And I don't expect people to do it because no one does. So, Dr. Kelsch, last couple questions here. Uh, I want to be respectful of your time. Yeah. One of the last things I ask people is, who would you want to hear on this podcast? And what would you either want to ask them or hear them talk about? Oh, well, you know, my, my uh, heavy interest subject for this year, this guy's retired now, so I don't think he'll give a talk for you. But, um, you know, many decades ago, a couple of doctors started a lab company called Metametrics, and they developed this organic acids testing. And to me, it's like this undiscovered jewel in functional medicine. I run an organic acids profile on every patient. This year, I've done lectures once a month for patients on it. I've done lectures once a month for doctors on organic acids testing. And on Monday, I was able to talk to one of the original researchers who helped develop this work. And um, her name is Kara Fitzgerald. So she's still active and in practice and maybe would be interviewed by you. And um, she, was, she did her PhD dissertation work with Dr. Richard Lord um, you know, about the organic acids profile. And it's a really complicated lab. There's a lot of science behind it. It's very difficult to interpret. And most doctors don't know how to interpret it and don't order it very often. But it's like maybe 50, 60% of my practice is based on the fundamentals of that test. And I, for the first time, talked with Kara on Monday night and was just so excited to actually talk to one of the original researchers. And um, 
she uses it on every patient, but you know, how many doctors do you know that know that do it? It's really it's rare to see that. So that's one of my sort of projects this year is to bring back interest in that test. And um, Richard Lord was one of the original developers. Kara Fitzgerald was his student, now a very accomplished teacher and practitioner in her own right. And um, there's a five series lecture uh, I did for patients. It's free. If they want to look at my website, they can figure it out and listen to it about the organic acids testing and everything from weight loss to brain function, liver toxicity, antioxidant levels. It covers blood sugar, all kinds of nutrient levels. It's a really, really important test that basically I think we should all be running you know, once a year. Very good, very good. And I'll have to put a link to the videos maybe in the show notes so everybody could check those out then. Yeah, too. it should be on my YouTube channel. And um, Patients loved them this year too. We got a really great response to people starting to understand a little bit of the science behind the test so they can see if it's applicable to them. Well, speaking of that though, where can everybody find more about you? Where can our listeners go to check out all your stuff, uh, like YouTube channel, websites, all of the above, please? Yeah, so for the patient side, it's kalishwellness.com, K-A-L-I-S-H, wellness.com. And I work with patients all over the world on the phone, if you're interested in working with me directly. And then on the practitioner side for training programs, it's the kalishinstitute.com. So again, kalishinstitute.com. You have all the information on the doctor trainings. And either of those, I think you can get linked into the YouTube channel and, and start to look at videos and, and get a sense of the things that we talk about. And that sounds great. I mean, I'll make sure get all these links up for everybody in case they miss them. Go check it out. Uh, some really good stuff there. Like you said, YouTube, lots of videos, information out there. Anybody looking to uh, dive a little deeper into some of this. So, Dr. Kaler, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I appreciate you sharing uh, everything that we talked about today. It's, it's been an absolute blast. Glad to do it. Appreciate your time. Thanks. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to head over to BarenakedHealthPodcast.com to check out the show notes for today's episode. While you're there, go to my calendar and schedule a 15-minute call so we can discuss what is your biggest struggle when it comes to maintaining your health. Remember that I'm a holistic lifestyle coach and the show is sponsored by you guys. Each of you that I work with helps me to be able to put out podcasts like this for free. So thanks again for your love and support. Finally, if the show has helped you out in any way, please head over to iTunes to give the Bare Naked Health Podcast a positive comment and five-star rating. This really goes a long way in getting the word out with how simple health can be and helping to share the podcast with others. So thank you. Mm-hmm.